you have to be very open-minded and also have an open heart. You know, you have to be ready to experience that change, which can be very uncomfortable and 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 should be. It's it's uncomfortable to learn new hard things and when I'm uncomfortable, I I congratulate myself because I say, "Hey, I'm learning something new." Welcome back to the first 16. I am Sarah Boivin-Chabot. And I'm Kirk Finken. Yes, today we are learning something new. I've been looking forward to this episode because I wasn't there when the interviews were recorded. And I understand that it was with two real agents of change. Absolutely. You know what it's like to be in the same room with someone who you know that like they're breaking new ground and you're witnessing them do it? It's really exciting. Hmm, I'm really curious now. So I spoke with two Indigenous scientists, both working in the field of agriculture. They're part of a growing cohort of young Indigenous professionals who are expanding and redefining science. Hi, I'm Emily Missy Abbott McCauley in Dishnikas. I am the Senior Indigenous Science Liaison Officer for the Science and Technology Branch. And you are listening to The First 16. Emily is a member of Lake Manitoba First Nation. She is of mixed race. Her mother is Ojibwe and her father is a settler from North Bay. She was born and raised in Algonquin Territory in Ottawa. She not only walks in two worlds of her cultural identity, she walks in two worlds of knowledge. She's a perfect person to have liaison in her title. Exactly. <laughs> I always think she should have it as her middle name. Emily, thank you so much for sitting down to discuss your work with us. The big question I have for you is, what is the difference between Indigenous knowledge and Western science? It's a really good question. It's probably the question I get asked the most. Knowledge or science uh, tends to be community-based and driven. So it's knowledge that's held by a community that has been living in a relationship with their land for so long. And they've been observing and recording, and that could be recording orally through through oral histories as opposed to like writing it down in a scientific notebook. But they've been observing and recording and making hypotheses and refining those hypotheses and passing on the most effective ones to the next generation for thousands of years. And so then on the other side, you have Western science, which is also a method of understanding the natural world around us and all of the interactions within it. The difference I find is that Western science, especially, tends to, and, and not just tends to, we instruct our students to place humans outside of the natural world. So I was in, you know, ecology and evolution for years and years and years, and any time that you would try to, you know, kind of like make a metaphor for an, an animal behavior and why that behavior might be seen in humans, that was a big no-no. Like you shouldn't be extending the results of your animal behavior studies to humans. But in, in, in an indigenous worldview, humans are part of that natural world. So when we talk about what is the difference between indigenous knowledge and Western science or indigenous science and Western science, it's actually the worldview that's different. The worldview is that humans are a part of nature and that we have relationships with everything in our environment, uh, including animals, plants, inanimate objects, other humans, those are all part of an interrelated 
set of connections that are very place and land based and specific. So Western science tries to do this thing where, you know, we'll try to extract the meaning of a single variable. Um, and so that we can predict the, you know, the effect of humidity and, and how that will affect plant growth, no matter where you are on the sur surface of the planet, right? Indigenous knowledge is more concerned about, um, you know, we've been hunting here since time immemorial. The elders are telling us that the meat is looking different and therefore there's something in our environment that we need to understand. And it's very local, um, specific, and, and, and it's indigenous knowledges. So each one of those communities will have their own knowledge system. Okay, so in your experience, is there a common ground between those two worldviews? I think that the worldviews align when we are working towards the same goal. So a lot of the time, you know, Indigenous communities are going to be on various paths to certain goals that they want to get to, you know, whether those are socioeconomic, cultural, environmental, scientific. The times when those two worldviews align are when, you know, our Western scientists and our Indigenous scientists are walking on the same path towards the same goal. That's the simplest way I can think of putting it. Um, so I absolutely think they're compatible. It's, you know, it's just a matter of finding those places where there's a common goal or understanding. You're part of a growing number of Indigenous scientists and public servants. It's an important shift that's happening. And we need more Indigenous people in the public service. I think Indigenous peoples in Canada have had decisions made on their behalf for a very long time. You know, I think we talked earlier about including Indigenous peoples in the analysis of research results, for example. The issue that you can have when you don't do that is that if you don't have the cultural understanding or the specific local context of why you might be getting those results, then you might make recommendations like policy recommendations for Indigenous communities that don't actually fit. The reason that we need to have more Indigenous peoples in the sciences and in the public service is so that those Indigenous peoples with those local knowledges and those lived experiences can make decisions within the context of those, of those understandings, of that knowledge that they already possess through their lived experience as Indigenous peoples in Canada. So... You know, when you talk about having a representative public service, that's what you need. I would like to see us uh, continuing to support Indigenous STEM students. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is because the youth, the Indigenous youth today that I'm working with are so incredibly impressive. They are not as displaced as me. They they have connections to their culture. They're proud of it. They're, they're not afraid to talk about it. Um, and they're also educated. So they walk in both worlds. That's true. But is it not also true that we need to see more Western scientists embracing indigenous ways of thinking? Yes, I think it's absolutely important to, you know, sensitize Western scientists to the to indigenous knowledges and indigenous worldviews. The entire Western scientific system that we've built up has been based on you know, one very narrow worldview that that really comes from a, a small group of elite academics. You know, it's a very old school worldview. And so all of our, you know, scientific funding and the way that we disseminate our results and the way that we choose which projects are funded are all based in that same system as well. And so if we want to change the way that we do science and the way that we think about the world, 
you know, we need to change that science system and that starts with the people within it. So I, I, I absolutely think so. And that's what I spend the majority of my time doing is, is training Western scientists how to better partner with Indigenous scientists. And then not the reverse yet. So, Sarah, you're a biologist, a Western-trained scientist. How do you feel about this? She's so right. Science, as much as I love it, has been confusing impartial and male Eurocentric point of view for too long. Diversity inclusion is happening, and it's about time. Indigenous sciences seem to be based on a lot of empirical observation as well, and I really like that idea that knowledge is linked to the place, the territory, and that you cannot completely take it out of its context. What I really like is that, you know, the, the idea that humans are still a part of nature, and that's a part of the way to think. So, Emily, you realize that you are an agent of change. So what would you like to see? What is the change you seek? You know, what I'd like to see is, as much as I've spoken about the Western scientific system and the way that it's been built, you know, I'm still a Western scientist and I still love Western science. And I think it's very, very exciting. And I think that, you know, we actually have an incredible department full of incredible scientists who are extraordinarily knowledgeable. What I would like to see is our scientists beginning to form, you know, local, long-term relationships with Indigenous communities and peoples in their areas and beginning on that path of relationship building and starting to understand each other a little bit more. That's what, it, that's what I'd really like to see. So I really do believe in that you can learn a lot from trees. The way that a tree operates is that, you know, every single leaf just has a very simple set of rules that it needs to follow. And when it gets too close to another tree, you know, that leaf's not going to grow any more, you know, little leaves out of it. And that's how you avoid, you know, trees becoming intertangled and, and pulling themselves, pulling each other down. You know, let's just try. Let's just try doing something different, right? And and make those those deep connections that only happen after, you know, you've had a thousand conversations with somebody and you've gotten to know them really well and you've built that trust and you can actually have those genuine conversations that lead to actual meaningful change. I think that's what we need to concentrate on. And what is it going to look like? I think I think that's something that we're going to co-develop with our partners. And and that's what I'm that's what I'm here to to help guide us towards. That's so inspiring. This sort of thinking opens up a whole new dimension to science. But you also said that you interviewed another Indigenous scientist, and he's doing applied research? Yeah, Emily actually introduced me to him. His name is Dr. Kyle Bobby Wash. He's an entomologist, an assistant professor, and the first Indigenous scholar in the University of Manitoba's Department of Entomology. And his focus is on the heavy lifters in the food system, pollinators. Dr. Bobby Wash, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. By virtue of your work, I know you've given a lot of thought to this question of melding of Indigenous knowledge and Western science. Can you share with us where you're at in your journey? You know, I have always thought that these two things were um, very tightly linked. Well, especially, you know, getting all these lessons from grandparents and parents and learning about kind of just ecosystems and the environment and animal behavior. But then, you know, being able to just turn right around and start looking at the ecology, even as a young child, I was interested in ecology, behavior, distributions, all these really important science aspects. 
So when somebody asks me, you know, what is a really solid melding of these two ways of knowing, these two ways of being, you know, I, I can see them happening and I, I see like perfect cases that, oh, this has happened. But a lot of times Indigenous peoples are not involved. As an ecologist, you're often thinking about the entirety of the system. Of course, you're missing a lot of the spiritual angles, the social angles, the economic angles. Even without those, there, there's still that same ethos in ecology that you might see in kind of Indigenous science or Indigenous ways of knowing. Can you give me some concrete examples of the successful melding of Indigenous knowledge in Western science? So if there's a concrete example that um, I would talk about, I haven't seen it yet because I think even... <laughs> Because, you know, I've all, I, to this day, I'm, I'm fairly critical of the approaches that a lot of people take still, right? I think sometimes things can be too, I don't want to say too sciencey or too indigenousy, but but they're focused on these things uh, still in a very separate manner. So are you saying that you're not seeing it yet? I think it's one of these things that, you know, I haven't seen a good example. Um, and that's why I'm kind of wanting to be more involved because I really want to reach out to other people with other perspectives and other expertise to really start crafting that perfect example. Because I, there, there's there's examples of places that are getting it, but, you know, a lot of times I could still see, oh, I would do this differently, I'd do that differently, or I don't even want to be involved with this because this, this is not pushing the cutting edge on science or the cutting edge on Indigenous sovereignty, or it's not pushing any of those cutting edges um, so it's kind of just redoing everything. And that's important, too. I think we're at a stage where we really need to play catch up because Indigenous peoples have been neglected for so long. So a lot of these things might seem a little bit boring, especially uh, to somebody younger or somebody involved in the science. It might be a little bit more tame. Uh, but I think that work still needs to be done. Well, what about in your own work? So it really doesn't exist in my work yet. And I think we often think about this Indigenous knowledge as a old-timey thing. And I think what I'm hoping to present Indigenous knowledge as is something that is constantly created. Okay, what are you hoping to achieve with your work with bees? What I'm hoping to do with my work on bees is really to, uh, you know, bring kind of these tools that we use in uh, bee, bee science and bee biodiversity work out to communities to allow them to really start crafting and start monitoring and start evaluating their own uh, bee populations out there. And as those students, as those communities really start to gain a little bit of knowledge and better understanding of the bees, right, they might, you know, develop their own common names for these bees. They might, you know, start developing words in those in the, in the respective languages for these bee behaviors and all these things. Uh, there's so much out there in terms of science that, you know, Indigenous peoples from all, all over the place have been seeing and are seeing. And we know that there's a lot of scientific background and basis for that. But there's not a lot of incorporation of that into new Indigenous traditional knowledge. There, there's a lot of thinking about, you know, the, the big birds, uh, the big game animals and species like that. But we don't often think of the more intricate relationships that we have, all sorts of tools to study now in science. So that's where I'm trying to hope to bring a lot of more communities involved. Just kind of give them the tools and really let them begin to start crafting ways to really uh, think about the best ways to conserve and best ways to monitor these species. All right. Well, how could we attract more Indigenous students to become scientists in agriculture? So one of the things I'm really trying to do, I, you know, I developed a new Indigenous Issues and Food Systems course, uh, where we're really thinking about food systems and agriculture at a more broad scale. We're not thinking of uh, agriculture as just a means to uh, get a job or a means to you know, benefit the economy through economic development and exporting of grains or something. 
we're really thinking about it as this, you know, human-based system that not only supports your economic well-being, but it supports uh, the ecosystems around it. It supports the health of those people. It supports that spiritual well-being of a person by allowing them to better take care of this planet that they're on through you know, advances in the techniques of managing a lot of these agricultural landscapes or these wild landscapes. The goal, I think, across the university is to really get indigenous experts in their field, so whatever field that might be in my entomology, bees or ecology, um, but really, you know, somebody that's tightly linked or potentially broad enough or generalized enough to really fit into the faculty and start thinking of uh, new and different ways where we can start either supporting indigenous peoples, uh, building capacity with indigenous youth, um, or, or really just making the university and these university programs a, a more recognizable place for Indigenous students. And I think that's something we don't often consider, right? So what do you think we need to consider or reconsider in order to move forward? One of the key terms is really we have to think, start thinking about what agriculture actually means. The culture of food, the culture of land, right? It's re really being this uh, caretaker land manager uh, that benefits humans, right? And I think that's probably amongst the most common, the most important lessons uh, across all Indigenous groups here in North America it is this responsibility that we have to everything around us, whether it's those people around us, the animals around us, the inanimate objects, or these ecosystems and these ecosystem functions around us. We have a responsibility to maintain them. Responsibility is a key tenet in the Indigenous worldview, yes? And only through meeting those responsibilities will we allow those species, those functions to actually uh, be responsible for us as well. So there's this two-way street that I think we need to recognize. And by you know potentially developing a program that is, uh, so I could say it's agroecological in uh, methodology, but also really multi-perspective in terms of Western indigenous perspectives. Uh, rural, uh, urban dwellers' perspectives, all these components really need to be wrapped around to really start thinking about how we can better design our food system to make sure that the people are, who are setting policies, whether they're uh, small-time agricultural policies or large-scale economic development policies, are really doing this for the benefit of everybody and not just for uh, you know the balance sheet that happens overall in Canada. What do you mean by that? I think the balance sheet needs to incorporate these, you know, social, uh, emotional well-being, the health, uh, the health outcomes, just the availability of food. I've moved kind to more of a transitional area in Winnipeg, and already you see it's a lot different. The grocery stores are further away. You see people going to convenience stores to get their groceries a lot more frequently. So something like this that, you know, in some departments we talk about them in particular classes, but again, these are these huge problems for a lot of people not being able to access farms or access, you know, quality nutrition. Again, and all of these things need to be wrapped together in, um, in any discussion when we're talking about agriculture or a food system. Well, those interviews gave me a lot of hope for the future of science. Me too. And with information like that, you know what to do, right? I think I do. Try something new. I am going to try something new. <laughs> this episode of The First 16 is brought to you by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And it is brought to you by us, Kirk and Sarah. Your soon-to-be favorite public servants. Well, I think Emily is my favorite public servant today. <laughs>